This episode is made possible by Playing Favorites, my weekly newsletter. The goal of our work isn't to be great in any objective sense. That's not how we create change or build a great business or leave our legacies. No, I think the goal isn't to be great, but instead to be their favorite, their personal preferred pick for a specific purpose. Regardless of what other options exist, they pick you, stick with you, and stick up for you. To get those benefits, we need to learn how to resonate with others, not just reach them. To create work that we love and others love too. So each week in my newsletter, I share one story and one source of inspiration to help us do that. It's free to join and you'll be in good company with thousands of entrepreneurs, freelancers, and creators, plus curious minds from brands like Adobe, Red Bull, The New York Times, The BBC, Shopify, Salesforce, and more. Subscribe for free at jayaconzo.com or check your show notes for a link. Thanks for your support. Today, I'm a bumblebee. Yesterday, I was a koala. Tomorrow, I might be a shark or cheetah or maybe a dolphin. This is my morning routine with my daughter, Aria, now two and a half. We wake up, or really, she wakes me up. And as we start to get dressed, she asks me, Daddy, can we pick a baby animal? So I sit down in this tiny little cushy chair in the corner of her room, and she climbs into my arms, crams a thumb in her mouth, and gazes up at me as I start listing out all the animals we've already been on prior days, and then we pick a new one for today. And then after that, we start talking about the color of our fur, our noses, our eyes, and we talk about what the animal eats and where they live. In the past few weeks, I've been a pink dog with a white nose who lives in the ocean, and a green fox who eats carrots and lives in the trees. Every morning, I'm reminded, we all used to think like this. Not the specific animal thing, but we thought we could be anything. We could do anything. We could look like anything, eat anything, live anywhere. Endless possibilities. And so Aria picks a few. And then together as purple cats or yellow elephants, we run and climb and crawl and do awesome air kicks. These moments are driven by something that escapes us as adults and even more so as professionals. Something we are trained to unlearn as school and then work stuff us full of dogma and data. The beginner's mindset. All that imagination and curiosity and the belief in possibilities. Concepts that we struggle to preserve. What might happen if we did? It's fresh, it's new, it's open. It's unthinkable. Stories about breaking from conventional thinking to create more resonant work. I'm Jay Akunzo. A terrible dictator threatens our livelihood. His rule is absolute. With an iron fist, he directs, prompts, persuades, and builds a world in his image. His influence is everywhere, his supporters fierce. Throughout our lives, we endure his effects. The tyranny of the right answer. Sit in lines and raise your hand and memorize the answer and don't stick your neck out and don't be weird and follow the best practice and do what came before you because that's what we've always done around here. 
The thing is, in our work, with our aspirations, what's been done before might not be what you should do next. The best practice is not necessarily the best approach for you. The tyranny of the right answer was built on the desire for total clarity, for zero ambiguity. No possible way is this anything else, because of course, it's that. That is the right answer. And of course, the tyranny of the right answer is built on the applause and the admiration of others, teachers, administrators, parents, and later, coworkers, clients, customers and bosses, and right now, followers online. You're ironclad in your answers and expertise. You're smart, you're worthy, you're good. All because you have the right answer. I say, it's time this tyranny was toppled. It's time this dictator was removed. He's built a citadel of certainty for himself and his followers. But we're carrying some powerful weapons of our own. Critiques of the conventional thinking, the desire to solve hard problems, an ability to access each other and our audiences directly to get feedback, collect data, and iterate and improve instead of needing to have the right answer up front or go through the gatekeepers. We come with curiosity and an open mind and a belief in new possibilities, a certain wonderful naivete for what should be done combined with some useful delusion that something better could be done. In other words, the beginner's mindset, our biggest weapon in the fight against a tyrant. In the architecture school space, this whole notion of the tyranny of the right answer almost was flipped on its head. This is education entrepreneur and former urban designer, Saba Gold. And that's what was so interesting to me and bewildering, I'd say. And, and I think it led me on another spiral of self-investigation, which was maybe this whole notion of needing to have the right answer is flawed. Today, Saba spends her time trying to improve the education of young people. In many ways, her work and her company exist to end the tyranny of the right answer. She's the co-founder and chief creative officer of New View Studio, which brings creative education to students around the world. To do so, they've had to rethink the usual approach to educating young people. One big change is that you wouldn't see this fractured day where students are constantly shifting between subjects every 45 minutes. The whole model is also built around this idea that you have a deep dive into a particular project. So students focus on a project for three weeks, three and a half weeks sometimes. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., they're working within their team and their group. A typical day, depending on where within that three and a half weeks uh, you you, want to situate yourself. If we're talking about somewhere early on, there might be a mix of site visits, experts coming in uh, for conversations to better understand an issue. So if there's a studio called Social Robots, there might be researchers who are at the Media Lab who are understanding psychology and human behavior that will come in and, and talk with the students. There might be site visits to see how companies and organizations do this kind of work. Plus, in the middle part of the experience, a lot of tinkering, building, and prototyping. Sketches and models, 2D, 3D models, digital fabrication, um, learning new technologies um, in the service of trying to express these ideas and produce these artifacts. Where's the quiz? Where's the standardized test? Where's the sitting in rows and raising your hands and, and getting applause? 
we, where the pause will come in is usually during the final reviews and presentations, which is usually a public space where students can share their process and stories. Um, and oftentimes that's where we'll see the kind of celebration in addition to the review and feedback. But it's, it's not going to, the raising hands, um, that is something that we have rules that not to follow ever. <laughs> <laughs> NewView's students benefit from the studio approach to learning. Saba first came to appreciate that approach when studying architecture and urban design. Taking studios and being in a studio environment, you're never asked, what is the answer? What, what do you? But it's more of this process-driven approach where you are given some type of prompt, a design prompt, and then it's a pretty long investigative process entailed where you're sketching and you're you're analyzing, you're looking at the world around, you're looking at precedents, you're developing models, physical prototypes, and it's an idea, it's a concept that you're beginning with and you're continually refining that idea and that concept and it changes over a period of time. Saba saw firsthand that our desire to have the right answer right now or for always doesn't always or even typically lead to great work. It rarely fits the process of being creative, of innovating, of solving meaningful problems. Instead, it anchors us to the conventional thinking. Thinking which is often rewarded in our current culture. I think we live in a culture that unfortunately sometimes prizes the extroverts. And if you're not the one, first one to speak up, even if it's like if it's at a dinner party, it's, there's 10 people at the table, and it's usually the ones who are you know the most social and extroverted who, who can uh, be the loud ones in the, in the, on the table, and, and you hear them the most, and naturally that comes across. Those cultural practices make their way into education also, where right. you can only raise your hand if you have the right answer, um, or you feel confident enough about what you're saying. How is NewView built to ensure students approach things with the beginner's mindset, and why does that matter? That is probably the hardest thing to unravel. I think as we get older, we have a tendency to rely on our past experiences, how we've done things before, how others have done things before. And really, I think, you know, that notion of the beginner's mindset is how can you maintain that freshness of perspective and being able to see things in, in different ways. And actually, that's where the name New View comes from, is new views, new perspectives. And, you know, seeing something that you've seen a hundred times over and, and looking at the finer details um, or how it's placed in a particular space or the light that's hitting it. So keeping that is really instrumental. And how do we do that? How, how does one nurture that beginner's mindset? This concept of the beginner's mindset has been thought about for years by people ranging from athletes to philosophers to business leaders to authors. And so joining us now to help us learn more about that and also to start translating this idea into how it applies to our work is writer and researcher Molly Donovan. So if you've spent any time on the internet, you've probably seen a lot of people billing themselves as experts. People are constantly offering expert opinions and expert testimonials, and they're peddling quick courses and growth hacks to help others build their own expertise. 
But in our more, more, more expert-driven society, I think we sometimes undervalue the benefit of not being an expert. We sometimes miss the wisdom of naivete. So in Buddhism, there's a concept that was popularized by Shunyu Suzuki, who was a Zen monk and teacher, and it's called Shoshin, and it literally means the beginner's mind. It's also known as the Zen mindset, and that's all about seeing the world from a fresh perspective, like a newborn baby would. When you're in the Zen mindset, you're always learning, and you're actually embracing naivete. So let's just get one thing straight up front. The word naive typically has a kind of negative connotation. We often think of it as a pejorative term. It's something you say about someone who doesn't have a clue or maybe about someone who doesn't care about perceptions or the status quo. But the Zen mindset isn't really about that. The whole point with the Zen mindset is that naivete allows you to look at situations without judgment. And the basic idea is that when you look at things in that way, you allow thoughts, feelings, and reactions to just be what they are without any kind of preconceived judgment. And that can be really freeing. So you see this show up a lot when, say, an executive who succeeded in one company joins another company, and now they're here to run the same playbook, and it falls apart. There's too many judgments they're passing. They aren't able to remove their experience and their collected wisdom or their perception that their experience is wisdom uh, in order to see the new experience with a certain naivete. So you're not experiencing the world firsthand as much. You're relying a little too much on older moments instead of new variables. You're, You're an expert, not an explorer. Exactly. And when you're practicing the Zen mindset, you can actually avoid some of the stress that that comes when you try too much to be an expert or when you, as you said, try to you know run the same playbook at a, at a new company. I've helped pilot something like a dozen brand podcasts at this point, and I've done three of my own. Given that, if somebody asks me about their podcast and what they should do, I do sense myself tensing up a little bit because I want to be right. Like The stakes are higher, and I do get a little more stressed out trying to walk in and be an expert instead of being naive and being like, huh, let me ask you a bunch of questions and figure this out with you. Absolutely. And Jay, there's good news for you because uh, if you could actually just get yourself to enter the Zen mindset, then neurologically speaking, you can actually calm your mind and help bring more clarity. So it's not just stress relieving, it's also beneficial to you creatively. I do find myself with some episodes, I walk into the edit of Unthinkable and I'm like, I want to create a moment like this. But the ones I feel like people love the most and I love the most, I didn't have a clue what I was doing in it. I didn't have any of these preconceived ideas. And now I got to make sense of moments while I'm experiencing them for the first time almost. It's understandable that you take something that you've done before and almost just make it formulaic. So kind of it's plug and play. You've done this before. You know what you're doing. And here's what you come in. You you get it done. But that doesn't, as you say, it doesn't kind of uncover these new opportunities to do something really cool that listeners or readers or customers really end up enjoying. With the Zen mindset, when you're not bogged down by what you think you know, you have the freedom to explore situations with a whole new perspective and uncover new possibilities and new meanings and new interpretations. And it's incredibly freeing and also creatively really pretty awesome. <laughs> I think there are two sides to this, which which makes it messy. In other words, reality. We're entering the real world here. Um, 
On the one hand, we benefit from building on learned experiences. So like generations pass down wisdom, that's what makes us so powerful as humans, right? We document processes, we document knowledge, and we can learn. Uh, we hone our intuition and our taste as individuals. So we draw on things that, that I guess fill up our minds and could potentially clutter them, which also then could prevent us from approaching things with a, a useful naivete. So this idea that we can draw on the past can be at once useful and also somehow limiting, uh, anchoring us to what came before and not necessarily what the world is right now uh, or what we could imagine the future to be. And I think that so sometimes this can lead to redundant work or sometimes we can recognize that we're not quite doing anything better and so we get frustrated. So there's there's two sides to this. I will I have started so many stories that I have abandoned because I hate them after I can't, I get too frustrated and feel like this isn't working. This isn't, this, this doesn't read the way I want it to. This doesn't feel the way I want it to feel. It's not good enough. And then I, I quit on it. But when I was little, that didn't happen. I would like to know how could I reacquaint myself with that beginner mindset that I used to have where I didn't care. I wasn't ever right. thinking anybody's going to read this except for people in my family. And I wasn't thinking, is this literature? Right, right. Like when you're a kid, you're either... Either you're not being judged with what you do or create or you yourself are not judging it. And maybe that's how it starts. Maybe early on you're doing it because it felt like the right thing to do. It's like, I want to do it this way or I want to make something. And then others start to judge your work. And then maybe you realize, oh, things can be good or bad. And so we're told there's a right or a wrong way or a right or a wrong answer. And so we know, okay, we can't do it wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be bad. And so we start to judge ourselves more just as others started judging us. And so maybe one way to get back to that useful naivete is, and, and start considering new possibilities is to just start the next thing as messily as we can, right? Like if I'm a writer, I'm going to consciously decide the point of this part of my process is to turn over an idea in all sorts of crazy directions and not judge those ideas. Or I'm going to slap down a really bad draft in the next hour and it's not for others to see or judge. It's for me to take one uncertain and messy step in a new direction, knowing I can always change it or refine it or even abandon it. I think a lot of it has to just do with being kinder to yourself. Treat yourself like you're a seven-year-old and you're doing this thing. You would never be mean about or judgmental about what a seven-year-old's putting out there. Trying to adopt this beginner mindset doesn't necessarily erase everything that you've done before and all the experience you've gained. If you can kind of reframe yourself as you're beginning a project to be more open to interesting ideas or be more open to quote unquote failure or what you might consider subpar, as you're moving through it, you can draw upon everything that you've, everything that you've done and all of the tastes that you've accumulated to improve. And you can kind of have the best of both worlds. I, I, at least I hope. I think there's something there, like we're searching for potential. And when we place too much value on what we've done before or what others say is proven, we we clutter our minds. And so this like tyranny of the right answer continues. We don't make space for exploration and curiosity and questioning things and, and possibility. And that's what this is about, possibility. To quote Zen master Shunryu Suzuki, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few.
let's rejoin education entrepreneur and former urban designer, Saba Gol. Three specific moments in Saba's life seem to combine to help her retain her beginner's mindset, and they just might help us do the same thing. First, when she was younger, she was taken out of the education system of the United States to experience something different than the usual curriculum. We'll call this first phase or moment escaping the convention. It's no secret that most schools, at least in the U.S. right now, are built for a bygone era, the industrial age. Factory work was the influence, and factory work was the goal. So in school, you sit in rows. You memorize and regurgitate what's memorized. Factories benefit from sameness, cogs in the system, to turn the crank slightly faster than the other guy. But what happens when all the parts and pieces are on the ground and we have to solve a problem? We have to build something new for a new world. In that scenario, compliance is no longer the main objective as it so often is in our schools today. And creativity, not uniformity, needs to win out. But right now, each classroom is more or less a building block for the citadel of certainty, the place where we start feeling the effects of the tyranny of the right answer. Teachers doing their best inside a system no longer built to bring out ours. Long before she co-founded NewView, Saba was a student inside that system. But then she got a taste of something different, which changed her perspective entirely. There was a, a year and a half when my parents and I went to India and my mom was my teacher, uh, at-home teacher. But I think what was interesting about that model was not so much the curriculum that we were focused on, my brother and I, during that period. But I think it was more having the space outside of even that curriculum where I could be outdoors in my dad's small town, exploring just what it was like to be outdoors in, in, a, in a more rural setting. The family home there is situated where there's farm animals. And so I grew really attached to the goats and the cows and the chickens and spending a lot of time just trying to catch the dragonflies that were, that were, that were flying about. But it, it kind of gave me also important experiences just talking to some of the workers there who were tending to the animals or coming from other villages and walking all the way to the small town where my, where my dad's home is. And those, I think, those experiences and the exposure to other life experiences that people had and simple things like in the morning, I remember we had one of the cooks would come and she would make these rice rotis, which are sort of like rice tortillas in the morning. Um, they're called chaoki roti. And I would sit with her and I'd wake up, especially at five in the morning. I mean, what, what nine-year-old wakes up at five in the morning excited to wake up? But I would wake up and it would be this fun time to actually do something that was really hands-on to make this. And I would do it pretty regularly. So it was this craft that I kept working at as a, as a, even as a child. And I would see every day, you know, it's getting a little better. Like the shape is getting rounder. The, the thickness is not this giant thick roti, but it's, it's starting to thin out. But those types of experiences, I think just led me to realize there's so much learning that isn't about what's the curriculum itself. Although everything that those experiences uh, with my mom teaching us and guiding us through was also very 
interesting because we could sort of personalize that process. So there wasn't a group of 35 students all trying to tackle the subject matter, whether it was, you know, some basic geometry in reference to 35 students, I was sort of operating as my own individual and my own learning and thought process. Um, So there was that personalized element, which I think was very, very important to the way that I learn. So I think that those both, again, those experiences outside of the curriculum and even within the curriculum really helped shape me and made me realize that learning could look very different than also what we're traditionally taught and how things are structured in more of a traditional school environment. Saba later returned to the United States with her family and resumed her typical education. Later, when she decided to earn a degree in urban design, she found herself in a new type of environment that relied more on that studio approach to hands-on learning and developing projects than her prior education allowed for. And that brings us to the second potential phase that we might use to preserve our own beginner's mindset. The first was to escape the convention. We can't evolve our work or create anything meaningful and memorable under the tyranny of the right answer. So the second phase is to solve hard problems. Now that you're questioning the status quo or frustrated by it or entirely escaped from it, whether physically or mentally, what will you do now? This is where three crucial questions can be useful, and these come from the approach known as design thinking. Say to yourself, self, when it comes to my work, who is it for? What is it for? How will I know if it's working? That's what the studio approach to learning helps us figure out. How to figure things out. Designing your process to solve hard problems. That requires answering those questions. Who is it for? What is it for? How will we know when it's working? Not just theory, application. Not just ideas, execution. Forward progress, when there is no right answer. Rather than gather up all the answers you feel you need to justify action, you act to find your answers. And that can feel really intimidating. You are so out of your element. You feel like you're so out of your element. And I remember there was, in my second year, we were doing this. this, It was a very abstract project, but we were essentially supposed to take this cube that that was 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches and developed some sort of a concept around how we were deconstructing that cube, which is a very design, design project. I remember working on this project for an entire quarter for almost 12 weeks. The final review was around the corner and I had this, I don't know, this moment of just fear that came in that how am I supposed to describe my my work, this abstract process in a way that's going to be understandable to others who are then also going to question and critique my work. And I I didn't show up to the final review. But I literally just kind of had a a moment where a breakdown in, in essence. And I think that was a big turning point also for me personally, because 
within that whole kind of development of my creative process is recognizing that sometimes that fear of the critique is so it can it can also become so debilitating but it was also a moment when i needed to reckon with the fact that you know critique should not be so personalized it's fueling me to be more reflective to understand my position better and to really further refine and define what it is that i'm doing so just to recap saba had escaped the convention That was her time spent exploring and self-educating, or at least being the sole student being educated with her mother homeschooling her. Later, a second concept or phase, solving hard problems. That's what learning should allow us to do, especially today. It's active and creative. It's a lean forward experience instead of lean back. And that can be intimidating, especially if we're used to the lean back experience. We should want to get it right, not be right. It's a total flip from the usual schooling we receive. In the typical education we get, they value being right in theory. Having the right answer is more important than the process to it. I remember being in school and looking at one of my good friends, Matt, in our physics class in high school. We would both get good grades on the test, but I would understand the process to the right answer and finish the test with time to spare, whereas Matt looked like he vomited ink all over his fingers and his paper, and finally through brute force, arrived at the correct answer. Now, applying that same approach to work makes no sense. Just because you arrive at the right answer doesn't mean your process was good. The more important thing is the process. But because education teaches us to value being right instead of how we get it right, we have to know up front, this will definitely work. That is no way to do anything more creative or innovative. And because we struggle to do so, it can be really helpful to start breaking that habit by receiving a very specific form of feedback. Not ideas, not people correcting us, but instead, people asking us questions. And that brings us to phase three, appreciative inquiry. One of the studios that I rem- recall most um, and one of the professors never actually made any suggestions. He always asked questions during the process. And that was it. That was huh. it. There was, there was never, this sounds more interesting or, oh, that, that, that idea that you're developing, could you elaborate on that? But it was more just a, a series of questions, the entire 12 weeks that I was developing this project. Appreciative inquiry is about looking for positive signal to start and then highlighting it or asking others to pursue it further. You prompt them to keep shaping their understanding or their work based on the promise of what they've already thought through or built. You appreciate where they're trying to go, you're aligned in the goals you share with them, and you want the value of their thinking or their projects to appreciate. In other words, grow in value. You want them to get it right, not be right. It's a process, so let's keep processing. I'll ask you some questions and you go investigate if you think there's any merit to my questions, but I'm not here to say you're right or you're wrong. Going through the studio, Saba felt how this kind of critique improved her work. For example, in one project, she was developing an art therapy center that would be based in Mumbai. A lot of the students were developing like physical models and there was this expected output that you see in, again, in the culture of 
the educational environment that you're in, that's sort of is sort of expected that you're going to end with this product. And through this process of inquiry and questioning, you know, my final project ended up being an installation. It was more of this art installation of, of sound bites and research and photographs and stories that ended up making up my final piece, my final product. And it was, it was more reflective of this journey that I had undertaken rather than needing to come to this conclusive end product. And I, and I thought to myself, why, why did I feel so empowered within this process? And I think it had a lot to do with the way that that professor really questioned and provided this question and inquiry, which made me feel very supported in my ideas to have the space that they needed to be able to grow and develop and not be interfered with by someone else's you know, thoughts and desires and wishes and hopes. It was like a master coach um, who could really do that in a, in a way that I felt empowered in my, in my creative journey. Escaping the convention, solving hard problems, appreciative inquiry. Get out of the usual routines and tropes and techniques, question them, break existing flows for new ones. Escape the convention. Then, with renewed perspective, ask, who is this for? What is this for? How will I know when it's working? Design your process and your work with intention so you can go solve hard problems. Finally, Seek feedback early, often, and throughout. Great work is rarely achieved alone in a hole somewhere, and then you come out and surprise people with an idea or a project. Instead, share ideas, concepts, and models. Share pieces and entire projects. Don't gather up all the answers you think you need to justify acting. Act to find your answers. In other words, aspire to get it right, not be right. And to make that easier, look for others who ask you, good questions, not give you their ideas or answers. Escape the convention, solve hard problems, and seek feedback, not evaluation or judgment, through appreciative inquiry. Taken together, this might lead us to something better. Saba, I guess I'm still wondering where this all starts. Like how do how do we as adults with past experiences and routines and habits and pressures on us to deliver our work, how do we face that reality and somehow summon the beginner's mindset like on demand? Can we or are we lost causes? <laughs> never, never. Going through this process, it, it's a generative process uh, where sometimes if you're a writer and you're trying to come up with an initial concept, maybe it's not that first concept that you latch onto, and it, and it it's going to take a number of weeks or or months and to to give yourself that allowance. Even saying like I'm going to have a few days, but I'm not going to just stick to that first thing that I that that comes into my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you'll revisit that. Maybe that maybe that's the idea that you'll come back to. But I think that that power even for within the scope of how we talk about the beginner's mindset and having that freedom to explore and not have the burden to just take that first thing that comes into your mind and that that's easy just to wait come up and generate a bunch of different ideas and see what comes of that process and maybe maybe it'll be a giant circle and you'll come back to where you started from but having that additional 
space to explore these other ideas is naturally going to impact even the way that you've thought about that original concept. It's not about the right answer. It's about this exploration of different thoughts and ideas that I think is really important. The freedom and encouragement to do that. The day I started writing this episode for you, I was a bumblebee. Right now, as I finish the script, I'm an eagle. That's what my daughter and I selected this morning. I have pink feathers and a blue beak, and I live in the ocean. I eat fish and crabs and gummy snacks because toddlers. That's the story that Aria shaped, the world that she dreamed up, the possibilities she imagined. That's the power of the beginner's mindset. It helps you imagine something better. It gets you off the well-worn path, and what you do from there is up to you. But at least to start, at least for a moment, we can imagine better possibilities. We can escape the convention, solve hard problems, and seek feedback through the questions of others through appreciative inquiry. Not everything needs to be rethought and reinvented from scratch. But if we can get back just a few moments of time each week to think and act more like a beginner, whether it's alone at our desks or with a team or stuffed awkwardly into a tiny chair in the morning, just a few more moments to think like a beginner, then maybe more of the time, the work would feel less like a slog and less stale. We might create something refreshing and make things that make a difference as together we run and climb and crawl and do some awesome air kicks. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written and edited by me, Jay Kunzo, with production support from Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions on this episode, the themes, or the show or my work overall, email me. I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com, and I'm also really responsive on Twitter at Jay Akunzo. As an independent creator, I rely on the support of listeners like you. Every time you share this show, leave a review, or buy a book or course from my website, I'm able to continue making this show and keep it free to find and enjoy. And it's like one of those scenarios where you've heard podcasters ask you for something before and you think, oh, well, enough other people will do this, that this show will continue. No, 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 no. I'm asking you to please support this show, whether you share it or buy something from me. All of it actually does contribute to my livelihood and the ability I have to keep making this show. So thank you so, so much for listening, for engaging, for supporting. I literally couldn't do this without you taking an active role. So thank you. And by the way, if you're looking for a good first step to extend your support of what I do, consider subscribing to my weekly newsletter. Every Friday, I share one story and one inspiring source of content to help us learn how to create work that connects more deeply so that we can build our businesses and leave our legacies. What makes others pick you, stick with you, and stick up for you? That's what I write my newsletter about. It's called Playing Favorites, and I send it every Friday for free. Visit jayaconzo.com to subscribe or check your show notes to learn more about that project. I'm back soon with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya.